Welcome to the Celebration Church Podcast. We believe God wants to speak into your life through this message. If you're interested in knowing more about Celebration Church, you can visit our website at celebrationedmonton.com and find us on Instagram and Facebook at Celebration EDM. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoy this message. We're on part four of the letter of James, working through the book of James. I don't know about you, but I have a kind of a dumb dichotomy sometimes in my life, and... um, as I share this, maybe you'll identify as something in your life, or maybe this is just my chance to have a confession, and you get to be the listeners to my confession. Um, but you can be at home and, you know, maybe in a, a, a rather intense conversation. Um, somebody might call it an argument, but we don't call it an argument because that'd be sin. So we just call it intense conversation with your wife, and um, or maybe speaking out of frustration, you know, w- with your kids. And then the phone rings. And you're like, hi, mom. Been there, right? It's like, what the? You just, you know, completely, completely um, different deal going on. Or, or maybe you've had that experience even going to work, or for that matter, coming to church, where, you know, you're, you're getting upset at the other drivers or, or the train. Mm, Jesus, help us. The train. And maybe you've... Um, you know, had one of those moments where it's like you just, you're driving and you're just running commentary on everything going on around you. Like, buddy, why did you change lanes just then? Uh, You know, can't you see the speed limit is 60 here, not 35? Um, Oh, sure, turn on your signal now. You know, and you're just having this, this conversation. And, you know, that happens sometimes with when I'm with another driver and I tell her, I say, you know, they can't hear you. They can't hear you. But then you walk into work or church or wherever you're going, you're all like, hey, everything's cool. But it's this weird dichotomy that we can have sometimes with our words. James chapter three and verse one says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. I'm so appreciative that this, uh, book is written by an apostle, uh, also professing his own weaknesses. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the ho- mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take a ship, for example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals and birds and reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come 
praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can salt produce fresh water. The first part of this passage can seem a little bit defeated because you're just reading about the lack of capacity that we seem to have to govern our mouth, to get a grip on our lip, as we've titled this. And, and it just talks about how we can have such extreme opposites where we're like praising God and then, you know, cursing some person. By the way, when it uses the word curse, it's not referring to um, swear words. What it's referring to is speaking in such a way as to be harmful towards somebody else. And then it says we, we can't tame the tongue, even though it's this little thing that is determining the course of our life. But the last part of the passage is where we find both hope and the real source of what's behind what's coming out of our mouths. He says, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Of course, the answer is no. The scripture is pointing to what it is that your life is rooted in. What is your life rooted in? What is it? That, what is determining the nature of our life? Uh, what is our life secured in? What is our life all about? What is our life rooted in? Because that's what's determining what's coming out of our mouth. In fact, your words are really just a reflection of what's already in your heart. Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. A tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, the fruit is good. If a tree is bad, the fruit is bad. You brood of snakes. How could evil men like you speak what is good and right? For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. A good person produces good things from the treasure of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasure of an evil heart. Being intentional about what fills your heart will impact what comes out of your mouth. Being intentional about what fills your heart will impact what comes out of your mouth. So let me ask you uh, two questions that I think are important to this. First one is this, what's in your heart? What is it that is in your heart? But the second, it's probably even more important is this, what are you putting into your heart? What are you putting into your heart? You know, as you read the story of, of God delivering Israel from Egypt and from their slavery and then taking them on a journey into their promised land, the biggest reoccurring problem throughout that whole uh, event is this, the constant complaining at every challenge they faced. Just constant. In effect, what they were doing with their mouth is cursing the very blessing that God was bringing on their life. How many of you know something? Complaining is cursing your blessing. That's what it is. They respond to each and every obstacle with complaining. It was like a predictable conversation. It was like, oh, can't wait for the next challenge. We know exactly what's gonna come out of their mouths. And at every obstacle, there was a complaint. It was the predictable conversation. As soon as a problem arose, the complaining was about to start. 
In Numbers chapter 14 and verse 22, it says this, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs that I performed in Egypt in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me 10 times. Not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. God is saying, listen, I had a promised land for them to go to. I had blessing for them, but they cursed their blessing with their complaining, and it kept them from all that God really had for them. Their complaining literally cursed their lives, kept them from a promised land, and only their children made it in. What did they complain about? Well, the first one is Exodus 5.21, where they complained to Moses because uh, they thought, well, Pharaoh's gonna be even more upset with us now that you've went and asked him to let us go so that we can leave and go into our promised land. And so they're complaining about that. Then they're, uh, you know, eventually just about to cross the, the Red Sea. And of course, Pharaoh's coming after him with his army as the story goes. And the second complaint arises where they tell Moses, listen, did you just bring us out here into this wilderness to die? I mean, we've got this army coming up against us and it seems like we're just positioned here to where we're gonna lose our lives. God tells, Mo God tells Moses to raise his staff over the sea then the miracle of the crossing of the Red Sea happens and Pharaoh's army is wiped out. Well, what happens next? Well, the next thing that happens is they celebrate. They celebrate. In Exodus 15, they begin to sing a new song to celebrate the miracle. I'm not gonna read the whole thing. It's longer than a rap song. I mean, so many words in this thing, but it's, it's like, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted the Lord and the rider, the army of Egypt, he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. Sounds like something you'd hear on a Sunday morning at celebration, come on. It's just talking about the greatness of God and, and how awesome he is and how he's done these great things in our past. It's only too bad though that Israel didn't sing that song the next time that they faced a challenge. Sometimes it's too bad when we forget what we sang on Sunday when we face our challenges on a Monday. Look at what happens next. It's more complaining. Exodus chapter 15 and verse 24 says they grumbled because they didn't have anything to drink. And they just went from this place of seeing God miraculously deliver them from an army, take them through across this Red Sea, which was a miracle as well. And now they're in a place of cursing and complaining to God because they needed something to drink. So Moses prays and God leads him to throw a tree into these waters, these bitter waters, and they became drinkable. They went from bitter to sweet. It was a miracle solution and it was a prophetic display of salvation at the same time. James says, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Salt water cannot produce fresh water. You see, the spring is your heart and your mouth. Springs are either gonna give off salt water or fresh water, but not both. This water was bitter. It was like our lives without Christ. Without Christ, 
our lives go to a place of being bitter. We've been hurt by circumstances and situations. We're not forgiving at all. We're not healed of our hurt. We're full of disappointment, disillusionment. Our self-esteem has been damaged, all the rest of it. Our lives go to a place of bitter. But when the tree got placed in the water, it became sweet. It changed it. It wasn't about trying to get sweet water from bitter water. No, no, the bitterness was gone. And now it was changed to be the water that they could drink. It's actually an image of what the cross of Christ does in your life. You see, the cross of Jesus, the message of the gospel comes into your life not so that you can have your bitter life and add sweetness to it, is so that God can take the bitterness out of your life and make life sweet because of the presence of God, because you've been forgiven. The Bible says you get a new heart, you get a new spirit, you get a fresh start. Everything has changed because of the cross of Jesus and the message of the gospel that comes into your life. No longer do you live in the bitterness of sin and shame and regret and resentment and hurt and animosity and unforgiveness, now you live in the sweetness of innocence, of being forgiven, of being restored, of grace and mercy defining you. Your change of heart is meant to change what comes out of your life and what comes out of your mouth as well. Then the next time they complain is Exodus 16. They complain about their need for food. God tells Moses he's gonna cause bread to just rain down from heaven every day. He says, it's gonna happen six days a week. And he said, on the sixth day, tell them to pick up twice as much because I'm not working on the seventh. How many are glad that God put the Sabbath as part of the cycle of life? Come on. That we're not stuck working a seven-day-a-week life, uh, you know, uh, like a slave or something like that. But God instituted the Sabbath for a reason. Then the fifth one in Exodus 17, too, they complained to Moses because they needed water again. Moses prays and God says, I want you to take a rod. I want you to hit a rock. I'm gonna cause water to come from a rock. What does God do? He provides a miracle solution because he's trying to not just meet their need for water, but to meet their need of their faith to begin to believe that they are walking with the God of the impossible that when things look impossible, that God makes it possible. And he did that right from the beginning. When he opens up the Red Sea and they cross, God took what was impossible and made it possible. And once again, at their complaining, he not only answers their need, but wants to send a message that you are walking with the God of the impossible. How many of you know, we need to know we work with and walk with a God who does the impossible. When it's impossible to you, it's still possible to God. Come on. When it's impossible to you, it's still possible to God. What looks impossible to man is possible to God. As a matter of fact, even just this morning, I got a text message about somebody in our church that was looking to, was really in a bad, bad way, I'll just say that, and it was looking impossible, but we prayed, we've been believing God, and the whole situation has turned around. What is impossible to man is possible to God. Then the sixth time, Exodus 32, verse one, they're complaining that Moses had left them too long when he went up on the mountain. And so they decide we should make a golden calf. And it seems like God's 
kind of gone. Listen, the absence of God will always lead you to idolatry. It's the way it is. Say, why? Because you and I were designed for worship. We, we, we were meant to worship. And if you don't have Jesus in your life, I promise you this, you are worshiping something else. It might be a material thing that you put above God that's the most important in your life. It might be an ideology. It might be a person. For that matter, it might even be yourself. But if Jesus isn't in your life, I promise you this, you are worshiping something. You're worshiping the wrong thing. You're worshiping created things when you're meant to worship the creator. Come on. And so here they are complaining, the absence of God, they turn into idolatry. Then number seven, seventh time, Numbers 11, verse one, they complain about hardships that they face. They complain, they said, there's too much adversity. You're taking us to the promised land, but we got like problems along the way. You know, we don't, we're walking with God. There shouldn't be any problems. I got Jesus in my life. Shouldn't everything just go smooth and be sweet? Come on, like in the movies, it all works out. Sometimes that's where our mind goes. We get this illusion about walking with God or this illusion about life. There shouldn't be problems in my life. This shouldn't happen to me. I shouldn't, I planned this vacation and my car broke down and that was not in the plan. I don't get it. And sometimes we're like taken back that we have adversity in our lives. That, that was their attitude. They're like, I can't believe we're having all this challenge. As if you shouldn't have hardship on the way of life. As if, as if adversity shouldn't happen. Listen, adversity is part of life. Nobody wants to amen on that one. Okay, live in denial all you want. But Jesus said, in this life, you will have trouble. So if Jesus said it, it must be true. But adversity is part of life. The promise of God is that God takes all things and works them together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. He does not say all things are good. Come on. He says he'll take all things and work them together. In other words, he'll make something good happen out of the bad that we've even gone through. He'll make something good out of the challenges and the adversity and the stuff that we go through in life. This is the way it is. This is seven times of complaining. God's gotta be thinking, would you like some cheese with your wine? But at any rate, maybe there's a better response to adversity in life than complaining. Then the eighth time, Numbers 11, verse four. They complained about wanting meat to eat. Moses prays, God sends them quail. Then the ninth time, Numbers 12, verse one, Miriam and Aaron complain about Moses' choice of a wife. Actually, the complaint was directed towards Moses and, and his leadership. That's really what it was about. But the next line after this is what is most convicting about this complaint because the next line, verse two, says this, and the Lord heard it. And the Lord heard it. Complaining isn't a prayer life. Complaining is not a prayer life. Our complaining, though, doesn't go unnoticed. However, it's not a prayer life. 
I didn't say asking for help. I didn't say telling God what you're going through and how you're feeling about it. I said complaining. So what's the difference? Here's the difference. Complaining is an attitude of heart that reflects no faith towards God and no love towards people. That's what complaining is. Complaining is an attitude of heart that has no faith towards God. In other words, I'm complaining because I'm really not believing for God to come in and deal with this and help me and walk with me and change. I'm not believing for that. Instead, I'm just gonna complain. I'm complaining because my situation involves people. So instead of believing the best in them, instead of being patient with them, instead of being forgiving, instead of being all those things listed in 1 Corinthians 13 about love, instead of acting like that, I'm not showing any love towards people. I've lost my patience with them. Complaining is an attitude of heart that reflects no faith towards God and no love towards people. Now the 10th time, Numbers 14, 2. All of Israel complained to Moses and Aaron saying, once again, if only we had died in Egypt. So there's all this complaining happening. It's the go-to response at every problem they face. Now, look at how God sees complaining. Here's how God sees it. Number 14, verse 11. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me? in spite of all the signs that I have performed among them. This is what God says about complaining. First of all, he calls it contempt. Contempt is this. Contempt is looking down at God. Say, oh, I don't look down at God. I I think God's great and all the rest. Yes, but when you're complaining, here's what you're doing. You're positioning your adversity, your problems, whatever it is you're complaining, you're positioning it above God. You're actually making God, you're saying this, God, you're lower than this. I'm gonna give this more attention. I'm gonna give this more voice. I'm going to put my, almost my celebration, if you would, towards this more than you. I should be lifting you up. That's what praise and worship does, doesn't it? It lifts the Lord up psychologically in our mind, in our heart. We remind ourselves, hey, God God is above my challenges. Whatever challenge you walked in with today, I just want you to know something. Jesus is above your challenge. He is greater than your challenge. He is the one you can put your faith in. But when you complain, you actually position Jesus under your challenge. And that's called contempt towards God because you're looking down on him. There was unbelief, refusing to have faith towards God in the midst of their problems. There was a hardness of heart not allowing the signs and wonders to shape the attitude towards God. How many of you know the miracles of your past are meant to shape your faith towards your future? Come on. The things that you've been through that God walked with you through and got you through in the past are meant to shape your attitude of heart towards him about your future. The prayers that he answered in your past are to build your faith for the prayers that you're praying about your future. Come on, all that God has provided for you in your past is meant to build your faith about his provision for your future. Everything that God does in your life, in your past, is a building block for your faith, for your future, unless you harden your heart. Fear, 
Okay, go ahead. Sure don't want to offer to the Lord a golf clap. You know what I'm saying? It's like, let's not wake him up. Okay. Fear was prevalent because they continuously commented about, might have been better just to stay in Egypt and just die there and miss out on their promised land. Finally, in gratitude, though they faced needs in their present, they seemed to lose sight of the fact that they had lived for 400 years in slavery and God had just delivered them from that. There's one other characteristic about complaining that's important to notice, and that is this. Complaining is always about speaking to what is. I'll say it a different way. Complaining limits yourself to speaking to what is. Uh, we don't have any water. Uh, we don't have any meat. Uh, we're, we're, we're facing adversity. Complaining is about rehearsing what is. That's what it is. All you're doing is speaking from the knowledge of your problem when you should be speaking from your knowledge of God and his ways and his promises. If you speak from the knowledge of God, you'll speak words of faith, you'll speak words of hope, you'll speak words of potential, you'll speak words of promise. That's what your words will be, that's what your prayers will be. This is why it's so important, by the way, to have a daily time with God where you're putting God's word into your heart, where you're actually opening up your Bible and reading it and spending, taking 15, 20 minutes even as a starting place in your mornings just to, to get with God, to get alone before the noise starts and just read the word, read the word, read the word and get the promises in your heart. Read about how Jesus handled situations of life and let it build a, a faith towards what God wants to do in your situations of life. You've got to put good treasure in your heart to get good to come out of your world, to get it to come out of your life. You've got to sow that into there. Let me tell you something. I appreciate everybody in church this morning, but an hour in church ain't gonna do it. Nobody wants to amen that either. You gotta build a lifestyle of sowing the word of God into your heart to where when you hit adversity, what comes out of you is the word. What comes out of you is promise. What comes out of you is my God is greater than this too. And that's your position. Why? Because you've sown his word deep into your spirit. Get his character, get his nature into your heart so that you speak from a place of faith, not religious ignorance. And just make religious statements, you know, that really just reflect that you don't read your Bible and you say things like, well, you just never know what the Lord will do. Dumb. <laughs> and that wasn't a complaint. Anyway, moving right along. <laughs> Complaining speaks to what is, but faith speaks to what can be. Faith speaks to what can be. You know, there, there's a time when in our relationships, we just need to offer condolence and sympathy. Uh, we don't need to try and fix it, especially when it's the loss of a loved one. Your words um, that express concern for what they're going through and what they're feeling, that's enough. That's all. But when you or others are facing a, a problem in life, to just to simply rehearse the details and say, hey, sucks to be you, um, isn't exactly helpful. God has a better plan. God has a better plan. Ephesians chapter four, verse 29. 
He says this, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. I want you to read that last part with me. We'll start at the but. Let's read it together. But only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Edification literally means increasing the potential of someone or something with a focus upon the process involved. It increases somebody's potential in their life when you speak words of edification. Another definition says, not vague generalities, which would suit a thousand cases equally well. Our words should be as nails fastened to a sure place. Words suited the present time and the present person. I love that. Words suited the present time and the present person. Our words should speak specifically to the need of the moment and give grace, that is literally empower that person that we're speaking to, speaking God's favor over their life, lifting their expectations, empowering them with hope and releasing them to be solution-minded, not defeat-minded, and to focus on what God can do, not just on the troubles they're facing. I love what it says in the description, increasing the potential of someone and something. You know, in the summer of 2010, when we were looking to secure our loan to, to buy this property that we're, that we're currently meeting in, um, we had a, a, a bank on board that uh, we just needed their final signature, and the due date was the Friday before the July long weekend in the summer. Instead of a signature, I got a phone call saying that they were backing out. So discouraging, so disappointing, and so not what you should do on the Friday before a long weekend in the middle of our summer. Amen. Just thought I'd throw that in there. So I called up a friend with a much larger church, and if I'm honest, told you I was going to give you confession time here this morning. I was really hoping that his church would have the financial capacity to help us with making this purchase. That was what was in my heart. Instead, he talked to me about the importance and the influence of confidence. He lifted my spirit to keep going, find a solution, walk into all those meetings I was gonna have to go through over the next two months before this came together with confidence because confidence is convincing. The scripture says, let the weak say I am strong. In other words, I might feel weak, I might even be weak, but I'm choosing to speak for my position in Christ, not my position in my flesh. And what God can do and the and speaking literally to God's potential. It would have done no good for me at all if he'd have simply shared sympathy and pity when what I needed was a confidence boost. And that gave me the grace to keep moving forward, and as they say, the rest is history. Ecclesiastes 10.12 says, words from the mouth 
of a wise man are gracious, but the lips of a fool consume him. When you speak from a place of faith towards God, when you speak from that place, in a place of knowing Jesus, you'll develop a habit of just speaking grace and faith and future and hope and ability and possibility and life into others around you. When you do that, you are speaking blessing. You are not cursing. People around you do not need your agreement that their situation is bad. That's not helpful. They need your words to lift them, empower them, build them up, give them hope for their future. Your words can lift their potential. They need you to speak confidence when their confidence has been shaken. They need you to speak faith when they've been discouraged. They need you to speak hope when they've lost hope. They need you to speak life when they feel empty. They need you to speak encouragement when they may be discouraged. Your words can literally put courage into somebody else's heart. That's what encourage means. James asked the question, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Let's make sure that our choice of our words are coming from a place of our faith in Jesus and our speaking life in Jesus' name. Let's stand as we wrap up in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that there's a better way for our lives than a way of complaining and criticizing and tearing down and all the rest. Lord, may our words not curse your blessing. Jesus, you, you bless us with a family May we not complain about that family. You bless us with a home. May we not complain about that home. You bless us with our job, our, our income. May we not complain about our job. May you bless us with our vehicle. May we not complain about it. May we not curse the very blessings that you bring into our life with our words. Lord, our words can be life to our situation. Our words can encourage and bring hope. Father, let our words, as the scripture says, always be seasoned with grace. God, may, may our words always lift people to the next level. Not leave them where they're at, but take them to where you want them to be in Jesus' name. With their heads bowed, I wanna pray one more prayer. The scripture asks the question, can salt water produce fresh water? Of course, the answer is no. If you don't like what's being produced in your life, you have to ask yourself, what is my life rooted in? What is the foundation of my life? What is at the heart of who I am? Because it's what's at the heart that is determining the experience. God's answer is to change your heart. That's what salvation does. Scripture says he gives you a new heart and a new spirit. It doesn't, you don't add Jesus to yourself. You get a new self because of Christ. A new heart, a new spirit, a new start in life. And so if you're that person who's here, maybe you're like, man, as I look at what my life's producing, it's only, it's only evidence of the fact that my life isn't rooted in Christ that I need God in my life, that I'm, I'm not walking with him. Or, or maybe you're even a person who said, well, I believe in Jesus and I have for some time, but, but I would ask you, if you're not 
happy with what your life is producing, the question becomes, is Christ really at the center of your life? Is he on the throne of your heart? You know, Jesus isn't meant just to be resident. He's meant to be president. So if you don't allow Christ to be first place in your life, you, you can just be in a cycle of the same old, same old, and your life is still producing stuff you don't want it to produce. Why? Because you've never surrendered. Salvation happens when we surrender. I want to pray with you. I want to give you an opportunity because that's the good news. You can get a fresh start here right today. You can have a new beginning in your life right now by this conversation with Jesus. With our heads bowed, how many here would say, Pastor, you know what? Include me in that prayer. Can you just give me a wave right now, right where you're standing? Include me in that prayer. I need to make that kind of commitment to Jesus. I need to make that surrender. I need Christ to be first place. That's the only place he'll have. Let's pray with those who are praying this morning. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you love me enough that you died for me and rose again so I could have a new life. I ask you to forgive my past and I invite you into my life proclaiming you as Savior and the Lord of my life. I'll follow you with all of my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening with us today. If you enjoyed it, check out more messages like this at celebrationedmonton.com or on the Celebration Church mobile app. If you'd like to partner with us financially, you can give on our website at celebrationedmonton.com. Come back next week to hear another great message.